It was the first day of football practice on a very hot August morning, early morning. The head coach, flanked by his assistants, looked at all of us new players, and he said this, we can do this the easy way or the hard way. That was it. He just said that. Total silence. Very tense silence. And after a few heartbeats, he said, any questions? And it was, as you would expect, completely quiet. Until one guy, we all had questions, one guy, one incredibly brave guy, raised his hand and said, Sir, what's the easy way? <laughs> to which he immediately replied, The easy way is to completely obey the coaches. Fight against your selfish pride and become a team. Run and do drills until you feel like you'll puke and then hydrate, rest, and we'll come back and do it all again a few hours later. Again, total silence. Forty young men not moving a muscle. All of us thinking the same thing. And then one really courageous dude raised his hand and said, Sir, then what's the hard way? Right? <clears throat> and an assistant coach answered immediately. They had obviously planned this out. The assistant coach answered, and he said, The hard way is to be lazy. Do your own thing, limp through the drills, rest on your supposedly exceptional talent. And then the head coach chimed in with his final comment. He said, Now you wonder why that's called the hard way. It's because... In the end, that lazy way leads to great loss, and loss is harder than practice. The tough path is called the easy way because it leads to victory, close quote. And that team, we chose the easy way, and we never regretted it. In the book of Daniel, the Babylonian emperor Nebuchadnezzar faces an sim incredibly similar choice. Uh, open your Bible to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4 in your Old Testament. Let's start at verse 4, and we're going to read about Nebuchadnezzar's situation where he faced an easy way and a hard way. Verse 4, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. I had a dream and it frightened me. While in my bed, the images and visions in my mind alarmed me. So I issued a decree to bring all the wise men of Babylon to me in order that they might make the dream's interpretation known to me. When the magicians, medians, Chaldeans, diviners came in, I told them the dream, he has learned, <clears throat> but they could not make his interpretation known to me. Finally, Daniel, named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and the spirit of the holy gods is in him, came before me. I told him the dream, Belteshazzar, head of the magicians, because I know that you have the spirit of the holy gods and that no mystery puzzles you. Explain to me the visions of my dream that I saw in its interpretation. In the visions of my mind, as I was lying on my bed, I saw this. There was a tree in the middle of the earth, and it was very tall. The tree grew large and strong. Its top reached the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful. Its fruit was abundant. And on it was food for all. Wild animals found shelter under it. The birds of the sky lived in its branches, and every creature was fed from it. And as I was lying in my bed, I also saw in the visions of my mind a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven. He called out loudly, "'Cut down the tree and chop off its branches.'" Strip off its leaves, scatter its fruit, let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump with its roots in the ground and with a band of iron and bronze around it in the tender grass of the field. Let him be drenched with dew from the sky and share the plants of the earth with the animals. Let his mind be changed from that of a human and let him be given the mind of an animal for seven periods of time. This word is decree by the decree of the watchers, and the decision is by command from the Holy One, so that the living will know that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms. He gives them to anyone He wants and sets the lowliest of people over them. That's the dream 
that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation. Because none of the wise men of my kingdom can make the interpretation known to me, but you can because you have a spirit of the holy gods. Stop there. As we summarize in our notes there inside your bulletin, Nebuchadnezzar has another dream. But to fully understand this dream and chapter 4, we need to learn some background. First thing we need to learn is some background about, about ancient dream literature. Herodotus is the father of history. He's an ancient Greek named Herodotus. He wrote, Herodotus wrote about 100 years after Nebuchadnezzar. And Herodotus goes out of his way to show us how the ancients treated dreams very seriously. All the ancient peoples of the world treated a dream as a communication from the gods. However, there is one great difference, and, and this is actually exposed in Herodotus, between biblical dreams and those of the other cultures. In Scripture, God always calls the person to humility. Now, he often gives dreams in the Bible to tell people to be bold, but it is to be bold because he has their back. They need to trust God, humbly trust him. Not so in all the other cultures. The other dreams tell people to be self-aggrandizing, to be really important on their own, to, to be bold by trusting themselves. It's a significant, you understand the difference? Significant difference, all right? For example, in Herodotus' day, there was a young Persian emperor named Xerxes. Now, Xerxes ruled all of these lands. This is all, here's the land Nebuchadnezzar ruled, okay? Roughly, Nebuchadnezzar ruled this land right here. Xerxes rules all of that and all of this huge chunk of the planet to the east. But it's not enough for Xerxes. He wants more. Herodotus tells us how he wants more and more. And as he's desiring to spread his empire, Xerxes has a dream. Actually, he has three dreams where a tall, handsome, flying man appears to him and tells him to conquer this little land here, Greece, Hellas, as they would have said it. Now, in the third dream, Xerxes saw this um, over his head. He had his golden crown on, and over his head were olive branches extending from his head and reaching out to cover all of the known world. However, as the olive branches spread to cover the world, Xerxes' crown disappeared. And he wondered what that meant. So we called together all of the Magi's and the Chaldean. By the way, exact same class of people that 100 years earlier served Nebuchadnezzar, same group of, of folks. The Chaldeans, Magi, who served Xerxes, told him this meant that everybody on the earth was going to become a slave of Xerxes, right? So he should exalt himself further. Dreams are about exalting yourself. And he should invade Greece. On that advice, Xerxes invaded Greece only to get his forces wiped out by Gerard Butler. So, um, actually, King Leonidas and, and other brave Greeks. The point is classical people believed in dreams, but people of God knew that those visions were designed to have you trust God more, to be humble in Him, and not trust yourself more. By the way, you do know that communication through dreams still occurs today. I, 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 I don't know if you know this. Tens of thousands of Muslims have come to faith in Jesus Christ over the last decade or so because of dreams. They have a dream where Jesus appears to them, and they know that's who it is. And, and he says to them that he is not just a highly regarded prophet, as is taught in Islam, but that he is indeed God incarnate, and that they should trust him. Here's what's fascinating. These people who have never cracked a Bible in their life almost universally will go find a Bible somewhere and look it up and compare what was told them in the dream with what the Bible says. If what they were told doesn't agree, then they, then they know that that's not genuine. But if what their dream was agrees with the Scripture about humbly trusting Jesus, then they know it's genuine and they believe on Him. 
Second important piece of literary background comes from the old Babylonian myths. Um, in Babylonian thought, this is really important, in Babylonian thought, the human starts as an animal. He's an animal until he is tamed by civilization. That's why in the great Babylonian epic, the Gilgamesh epic, uh, the hero is a guy named Enkidu. Enkidu starts as an animal. I mean, he's covered with hair. He's all animalistic until he becomes civilized and human, which happens through copulation. It's disgusting. Anyway, that, that, that's, that's Gilgamesh. It's very, very gross. Daniel sees humanity in the exact opposite way. Humanity is not animalistic. Humanity is different, is made in the very image of God, different than any other created thing. Okay, do, you see, do you see the huge dichotomy we have here? This is really significant. So the dream in Daniel 4 is making a really significant contrast. The person, by the way, in case you couldn't tell, the tree is going to be the emperor. You'll find out. The, the emperor does not start as an animal and become civilized into humanity. No, no. It's the exact opposite. He begins as a human but loses his mind. That's when he becomes animalistic. So basically what you've got in Daniel 4 is the very first debate in history between the idea of created humanity and macroevolution. This is the very first one. We'll see how it turns out. One last literary note. Most high is a very important term. It's a term that appears 13 times in Daniel. That's more than any other book in the Bible except for the Psalms which are much, much longer. Uh, and by the way, the word is the same in, in Hebrew, Akkadian, or Royal Aramaic. Here it's rendered in Royal Aramaic. Uh, the big idea in verse 17 is eleye. Eleye. It's what we translate as most high. Now, this is more than it seems. In the ancient Near East, to be most high is more than just to be the, the top of a, of a pantheon or to be the best of something. No, no. Most high means, in Near Eastern thought, that you're the only one. It's not just a supreme idea, it's a singular idea. That, that's real. What, what he's saying, is, in using Ilaye, he's, he's saying Tigger, you know? <laughs> I'm the only one. Right? That's, that's the idea. T-I-double-er. He's the only one. Keep that in mind. That's really important to this text. All right, that's the background of ancient literature. Now, the scriptural context matters as well. So we need to look at a dream the emperor had earlier, his dream in chapter 2. If you don't know the story, early in his reign over the consolidated Neo-Babylonian Empire, God sends Nebuchadnezzar a dream. Now, that dream covers what the Old Testament calls the times of the Gentiles, a series of empires that are going to rule over the Jews in Jerusalem. Um, Nebuchadnezzar is told he is the head of gold. The most important aspect to remember about chapter four, in chapter 4 about that dream in chapter 2 is that it's Daniel who saves the day. God gave Daniel supernatural insight and wisdom. He knew the dream and the, and the interpretation. He saves that entire class of people, that advisor class. He saves their lives. And probably most importantly to Nebuchadnezzar, he extricates the emperor from a really tough catch-22, a bad political position into which he has put himself. The chapter 4 dream unfolds many years later. Um, looking at the evidence we've got inside and outside the Bible, my old teacher gives the timing like this, and I think he's right. Dr. Pentecost writes, this incident, chapter 4, may have taken place about the 35th year of Nebuchadnezzar's rule, about 570 B.C. This would be some 30 years after the experience of the three men in the fiery furnace, that's Daniel chapter 3, about the 50th year of Daniel's life. Okay, so a long time later, this new dream comes. And once again, the king turns to his most brilliant advisor, the one who is exalted above all others, the second most powerful person in the world, Daniel. It is fascinating to compare the two situations. They're written this way so that we will compare them. Take a look. 
Chapter 2, the gold head. Nebuchadnezzar learns that he has ultimate authority because of God. God has established him. Chapter 4, the great tree dream. Nebuchadnezzar leads the world because of God. In chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar gets himself in a mess with powerful humans. Chapter 4, he gets himself in a mess with God. That's why the watcher, the angel, is speaking to him. In chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar can't get answers from all of the Chaldeans, his advisors. Only Daniel can help. Chapter 4, same thing. He can't get answers from the Chaldeans. Only Daniel can help. The big point's unchanged. God is the authority. In fact, there's only one thing that changes. In these two dreams, in terms of their big idea, there's only one change. What is it? In chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar's in trouble with whom? With people. Chapter 4, who's he in trouble with? Oh, that's worse. All right? Now, to understand his problem with God, one last piece of background. You need to understand his theological learning disability. Okay? Nebuchadnezzar has a theological learning disability. You see it in chapter 3. He's got a serious problem. exposes itself this way. Look, in chapter 3... He starts off uh, thinking basically that he's Tigger. He is the only one. He is the most high. Look look what he says to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the the three Hebrews. He says, who's the God that can rescue you from my power? And the obvious implication, rhetorical question is none. He sees himself as stronger than any deity. That's a pretty bad place to be, all right? Hubris in the dictionary has that picture beside it. Now, Amazingly, in the chapter with the the great brick kiln miracle, what we call the fiery furnace, he has this great upswing, and he actually calls them servants of the Most High God. Remember, that means the singular God. Amazing. He gets it. He understands, but then he doesn't really want to stay with that. He slides down, and he ends the chapter. And the end of chapter 3 is the official proclamation. This is the, this is the edited thing that he says to the world. Um, Nebuchadnezzar explained, they, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, risk their lives rather than serve or worship any god except, what does it say, everybody? Their own god. You see, God has now been reduced back from the Most High to just their god. Yahweh is just a God. He's the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. All that is what's behind verse 8 in chapter 4. All these years later, the emperor still doesn't really get it. Daniel had told him, look, when Daniel was a teenager, look what he told him. Chapter 2, verse 28. There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he's let King Nebuchadnezzar know what will happen in the last days. A God. But Nebuchadnezzar's theological learning disability turns that into one of the holy gods. All right, now, given all that background, it's frankly amazing to me to see that God is coaching the emperor. He's not obliterating him. He is coaching him. The Most High actually promises to leave this proud fool a future. Look, that, that's what the band of iron and, and bronze around the tree means. Nebuchadnezzar has had half a lifetime to understand. Like any human, he is without excuse, and yet I think his responsibility is higher than most anyone's because he has served with Daniel all these years. This dude deserves to be struck by lightning and obliterated. And by the way, if this were a Persian story or a Greek story, I guarantee you that's what would happen. But in God's true story, that's not what happens. He protects the stump. He he prepares all these events to coach Nebuchadnezzar, to help him along. The humbling of Nebuchadnezzar is actually for Nebuchadnezzar's good. How many of you have ever lived with a teenager? Raise your hand if you've ever lived with a teenager. Keep your hands, raise them really high. Keep your hand up if that teenager ever has acted like a stinking brat. Yeah, more hands came up. That's amazing. All right. That's actually, by the way, hands down, that's, a, that's an official medical diagnosis. But I don't know if you know that stinking brat is official medical diagnosis. Now, 
Now, Mark Twain never actually said his most famous quote that is used all the time about teenagehood. When a child becomes a teenager, put him in a barrel and feed him through a hole. When he turns 16, plug up the hole. <laughs> Mr. Clemens never said that. It's not an actual quote from him. But it does do a very nice job of capturing the pain of dealing with a difficult child. And yet, you would never do that, right? Yeah. Okay. The kids in here are getting a little nervous. That was a less than joyful response there. This time say amen. Okay, just, it's okay. I got you back, kids. Okay, you would never do that. Thank you. That's better. I got you covered. All right, yeah. We might punish, right? We might punish a youth. We might let them face consequences. Uh, we, we, we'll take away car keys or phones. But it's all to coach that person, right? It's to, it's to band them in with love. Well, if terribly flawed parents like us intend to coach our kids... Imagine how much more committed the perfect God is. He's going to coach Nebuchadnezzar back up from the stump of his humbling. That is the whole purpose of this. Look, look at God's purpose statement, verse 17. This is so that, the li- that's, a, that's a purpose statement. This is so that the living will know that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms. He gives them to anyone he wants and sets the lowliest of people over them. That is the point for Nebuchadnezzar to learn how his hard way is and, and, and how important it is for him to leave that hard way and follow the true easy way of following God. In fact, that purpose statement gets repeated in the next section. Go, go to verse 19. Verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name is Belteshazzar, was stunned for a moment and his thoughts alarmed him. That's really amazing. These guys who worked together for 40 years, his thoughts alarmed him. The king said, Belteshazzar, don't let the dreamer's interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered, my lord, may the dream apply to those who hate you and its interpretation to your enemies. The, the tree you saw, which grew large and strong, whose top reached the sky, was visible to the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, wild animals lived, and its branches, the birds of the sky, lived. That tree's you, your majesty. For you've become great and strong. Your greatness has grown and even reaches to the sky. Your dominion extends to the ends of the earth. The king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump with its roots in the ground and with a band of iron and bronze around it in the tender grass of the field. Let him be drenched with dew from the sky and share food with the wild animals for seven periods of time. This is the interpretation, Your Majesty, and this is the decree the Most High, of the Most High that has been issued against my Lord King, you will be driven away from people to live with wild animals. You will feed on grass like cattle and be drenched with dew from the sky for seven periods of time until you acknowledge that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms and he gives them to anyone he wants. As for the command to leave the tree stump with its roots, your kingdom will be restored to you as soon as you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, may my advice seem good to you, my King. Separate yourself from your sins by doing what is right and from your injustice by showing mercy to the needy. Perhaps there will be an extension of your prosperity. Those are ways you show you trust God in the Old Testament is by, is by showing mercy. As we see on the right side of our notes, Daniel here finds himself in another unenviable position. By the way, in case you've forgotten, just to review, here's a partial list of Daniel's difficult scenarios he's faced in his life. He was taken from his family as a prepubescent boy. His country was destroyed, his religion circumvented. He was forcibly relocated and forced to serve the conquerors of his land. He was probably made into a eunuch, very likely made into a eunuch, and he's faced death in the king's service. Just for fun, I'd like to compare that with what are the top stressors and situations in our lives. 
Um, the, the one poll group did a very extensive, very extensive study of young adults in America, and these were the top 20 stressful situations. Ready? Number 20, washing dishes. That's the 20th most stressful thing in life. Um, some of you are looking at your spouses. You must feel the same way. 19, choosing what to wear, job security, school loan payments. Number 16 is check engine light coming on. Um, 15 is paying credit card bills, uh, phone screen breaking is 14, job interviews 13, paying bills is 12, losing or misplacing your keys, the 11th most stressful thing in life. Number 10 is forgetting your phone charger. That's the that's 10th most stressful thing. Credit card fraud is 9, forgetting passwords, phone battery dying. Number 6, most stressful thing is slow Wi-Fi. And by the way, based on the comments I've heard from some of you, I think it may be higher than that because we have slow Wi-Fi here. Number five, arriving late to work. Number four, losing phone. Number three, commute or traffic delays. Number two is arguing with your partner. And get this, number one, losing a credit card is more stressful than an argument with your spouse. Um, now, some of those are genuinely difficult, but look at this. Isn't it intriguing? Eleven of the 20 largest stressors in America are phone, car, and credit card. They account for 11 of the 20. Those things are so stressful to Americans that, get this, the average American, because of those things, struggles to sleep 138 nights a year. That's over a third of the year. This is my favorite part of the whole study. 58% of Americans believe these are the most stressful times in human history. I think Daniel would beg to defer, especially since he owns neither phone, car, or credit card. But the issue in life isn't who has the hardest time. The issue is who faces the hard times with God. You see, doing life with the Most High makes the toughest times into the easy way. Doing life without God makes even modern conveniences into the hard way. Now, Daniel faces two choices here. Choice number one, he can avoid this serious threat. And believe me, he's talking to an absolute ruler. He is in a seriously threatened situation. He could lie. During this stunned pause there, the possibility exists that he can get out of this with a simple lie. He doesn't. Daniel tells the truth. He takes the ultimately easy way. But that is not the norm, right? The norm is self-protection over honesty. It happens all the time. For example, Herodotus that I told you about wrote 100 years after Nebuchadnezzar. He tells this story. It happened not too many years after Daniel, actually. Um, Histieus was a Greek tyrant from the city of Sardis, a city that's mentioned in your book of Revelation. And his, his, his situation he faced isn't important. It's not germane for our discussion today. But his solution to his situation is, okay? I want you to look at what Herodotus tells us about Histieus. Histieus argued that the only smart path for the Greeks was to help the Persians while pretending to keep faith with the Scythians. Again, don't worry about the situation. Just notice this. He says the Greeks must lie to the Scythians to save their own necks. And after Darius defeated Scythia, they must lie to Darius whenever necessary to advance their own careers. And, and this dynamic hasn't changed in 3,000 years. People tell lies to teammates, family members, vendors, subordinates, bosses. We say whatever is necessary to advance the speaker's own situation. It's what we do. What was your last lie? Very possibly, it came today. You were out there in the foyer, and some brother or sister in Christ said to you, how are you? And you said, fine, even though today you're not fine. That's a lie. Why do we tell those lies? 
The same reasons Histieos had, the same things that are staring Daniel in the face. We tell those lies because we want to make our life smoother. We want to avoid conflict. We, we want to make others like us or we want other people to be impressed with us. That's why we lie. But unlike Histieos, who pays for his lies, oh my goodness, you should read Herodotus, Daniel knows lying is a trap. It, it, it looks easier to lie sometimes, but that actually is the hard way because lying leads to defeat. And the loss brought by lies is worse than a hundred days of football two-a-days. Trust me, from painful personal experience, I know of what I speak. Better yet, don't trust me. Trust God's Word. Read with me what Scripture says about lying. Uh, You'd get the underlined part. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 19. The one who tells the truth will endure forever, but the one who lies will last only for a moment. 21.6. The getting of treasures by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapor and a snare of death. Daniel knows this, and he chooses the easy way of not Lying. Choice number two is, is implied between the lines of the story. It involves scheming. <laughs> Daniel could have manipulated this situation knowing as he did what was to come. Think, think. Daniel could have spent the ensuing 12 months using his considerable power to prepare for the disaster of a coming government coup. N- knowing think, that he was strongly associated with his name giver, the Emperor Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel knows he is at risk if Nebuchadnezzar is dethroned. So Daniel could have called in favors, right? He could have built up a power base. He could have have worked with a foreign power in order to survive. He he could have done anything to cover his own backside. Instead, he seemingly did nothing. He humbly trusted God's sovereign hand instead of scheming. In fact, look, Daniel tries to come up with solutions that will forestall Nebuchadnezzar's downfall. Not for himself, but because he genuinely cares about this emperor. That's why he purposely says a number of times, My king. Aren't you glad we always do the same? We all, every one of us here always trusts God instead of scheming. When, when our kids might be getting a bad grade from a teacher, we just calmly follow protocol, right? We, we, we just support the school and we trust God. Isn't that cool? When, when, when national politics get really hot and it appears like the lunatics are winning, we, we never panic. We just speak truth in love and we trust God. And when, and when the office politics heat up, we don't ever engage in speculation and backside covering. We're wise as serpents, but we remain as innocent as doves, right? Each one of us here is exactly like Daniel. We never choose to scheme. But I was thinking about it, and I thought possibly other people around the world that study with us might struggle with this, so I included it for them. Anyway, that's how Daniel handled his sticky situation. Meanwhile, Nebuchadnezzar once again puts himself in another unenviable position. Pick it up in verse 28. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, as he was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon, the king exclaimed, Is this not Babylon the great that I have built to be a royal residence by my vast power and for my majestic glory? While the words were still in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared that the kingdom has departed from you. You'll be driven away from people to live with the wild animals, and you will feed on grass like cattle for seven periods of time until you acknowledge the Most High is ruled over human kingdoms, and He gives them to anyone He wants. At that moment, the message against Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people. He ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with dew from the sky until his hair grew like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. The Babylonian emperor also faces two choices. Choice number one involves action. 
He can avoid loss by responding to truth. That's what Daniel called for. Look, look at verse 27. If Nebuchadnezzar would have responded, you know what it seems like? It seems likely God would have spared him the way he spared a generation of the Assyrian Empire that came, that came before he did, before Babylon. There was, there was a prophet named Jonah, the least motivated preacher in all of history. And he went to these people in Assyria, the kingdom that was before Babylonia, before Nebuchadnezzar, and he told them, you have 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. He, he made this simple little speech about how God was going to judge them. And they responded. They acted on They believed God's word and they acted on They repented in sackcloth and ashes and God spared them. He revealed an unseen wrinkle in his plan, and that generation was blessed. The same thing seemingly could happen for Nebuchadnezzar if he responds to the truth. He apparently believes Daniel. He just refuses to act on it. I told you about that, uh, that high school football team. A friend of mine from that team um, was told by his doctor that he needed to get exercise, regular exercise, every day. Uh, I bumped into this guy a few months after that doctor's appointment, and uh, I said, how's it going? He told me, well, my doctor says I have to get exercise every day. And I just had to glance at him to recognize that he was not following what his doctor had said. Now, understand, this guy was a gifted athlete, a dedicated, he, he understands exercise. He, he went to college for free on a Division I scholarship in athletics, and yet he wasn't doing it. And so I asked him, I said, do you, not, do you not trust the doc? Do you think the doc's wrong? And he said the most fascinating thing. He said, no, I believe him. He's right. I just don't want to go through all the hard work of changing my lifestyle. My business is booming, and I'm too busy to exercise. That was five years ago. Two years ago, he died from heart disease brought on by diabetes. It doesn't matter where we're told that change is needed. It may be in your body, it may be in your soul, your family, your company. If the source is trustworthy and the data sound, we need to do more than just agree. We need to act. That, that's why James reminds us, say it with me. James uh, chapter, well, I can't get James. Sorry, James chapter one, verse 22, altogether. Be doers of the word. Wait, sorry, altogether is an English phrase. It means that you speak with me at the same time. And unless you want to stay here later and play Simon Says, you will do it now. All right, you ready? James 1, 22. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. That is our daily choice, and it was choice number one for Nebuchadnezzar. Choice number two involved humility. Nebuchadnezzar could have chosen to humbly trust God's sovereign hand, and yet he instead, he revels in what he thinks are his accomplishments. That lack of humility leads directly to his downfall. Now, everybody... Everybody always asks, um, in, the, in their ticker voice usually, <laughs> so how did this happen, right? That's what you're, you're going to write me, don't, because the answer is I don't know. No, the, tech, the, the answer is we don't know. Now, here's what we do know. Verse 33 represents rapid onset mental illness, and it seems God used that powerful tool to humble the emperor. Beyond that, we don't know. Now, some scholars speculate that his disability was followed by a palace coup, uh, they say Nebuchadnezzar uh, survived by living along the canals. Up, above, up in the hills above Babylon, there, there were a bunch of really brilliant canals and a, kind of a wild area that was well watered, and, and they think he lived there hiding and trying to stay alive. Now, regardless of whether that was true or not, it's okay. He'll be all right. Just stay with it. Um, the point is clear. 
Instead of humbly trusting the Most High, Nebuchadnezzar wallowed in his prideful view of self, and it cost him dearly. Bill Peel, who has taught here before, uh, Bill Peel says this in his book on Daniel. He says, privilege brings responsibility. When people and cultures continue to refuse God's mercy and his revelation, they can expect what, everybody? Judgment. Thankfully, judgment leads Nebuchadnezzar to repentance. The emperor ends up joining Daniel in trusting the true king. You'll see that in verse 34 and 35. Take a look, 34. But at the end of those days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven. That's a phrase that, that means repented. It's an it's a idiom for, for I changed my mind. And my sanity returned to me. Then I praised the Most High and honored and glorified Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, and He does what He wants with the army of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. There is no one who can block His hand or say to Him, What have you done? Let's quickly notice a few brilliant points in the emperor's recitation here. Look at how he sees God more clearly. Right thinking is tied to humbly trusting God. That's what look to heaven means. He humbly trusted God. That brought him right thinking. Secondly, God is again called most high. He is the tigger. He is the only one, right? Third, God lives forever. This is huge, okay? The Babylonian gods were not guaranteed eternal life. They, they lived in fear of death. They couldn't be killed exactly like humans, but they still could die, and they were, they were terrified of death. Not so the one true Almighty Most High. He, he isn't like that. He lives forever. And, and look, look at your text. This God, who is the true God, is completely sovereign over time, space, governments, humans, angels. This is one of the comprehensive statements of theology in the entire Old Testament, and it comes from the Gentile who torched Jerusalem. And yes, I know the next question. I know in your uh, Pooh Bear imitation, you're saying, think, think, think. So salvation, Christopher Robin, comes by faith. Is, is the king saved by trusting God here? Hmm. Great question, Pooh. Technically, the text doesn't say. And the answer, of course, is between him and God. But based on what the scriptures do say about faith, it seems very likely that Nebuchadnezzar is in heaven with the other Old Testament saints. And if that's true, I for one can't wait to meet him. We know for certain that he's rescued temporarily. Look at verse 36. At that time my sanity returned to me, and my majesty and splendor returned to me for the glory of my kingdom, not self. My advisors and my nobles sought me out. I was reestablished over my kingdom, and even more greatness came to me. His this, here's what fascinates me. He gets, he gets more than he even had before. It's amazing. See, so you don't have to cry. You can come back. Um, but this is what's most intriguing to me. He had counselors able to return. You do know when, still even now, but especially in Eastern politics, when there is an overturn of government, nobody's left standing. The other party's all removed. Now, it may be that somehow when he had to abdicate his throne because of his mental illness, that, that whoever was, was ruling kept his party intact. That would be exceedingly rare. What's more likely is that Daniel ruled the empire for seven years in the king's name, in the emperor's name. He was the second most powerful person on the planet. And he may have just stepped into that role and, and ruled. In, and if that's true, here's what's astonishing. Look, that means that Daniel 
willingly turned the keys of the kingdom back over to Nebuchadnezzar. That's, there, there are very few examples of these in history. Your, your history has one, George Washington actually not taking a permanent position and stepping down for, for president, but they are very rare to find. That may be why Daniel is so positively remembered by the imperial family a number of years later, but, but that's in the next chapter. For now, just read verse 37. Verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and glorify the king of the heavens because all his works are true and his ways are just. He is able to humble those who walk in pride. Nebuchadnezzar finally gets it. At last, he sees himself clearly. Remember, his two great choices concerned truth and humility. Now he finally embraces each. He responds to God's truth, he acts on it, and he accepts humility under God. In, in his prayer and repentance, we learn that what seemed like the easy way to him actually led to great hardship. What looked like the hard way led to victory and blessing. And having learned that lesson, he now speaks out to help others. Go, go back to the very beginning of the chapter. Read the introduction we skipped over. We skipped over verses 1 through 3. Chapter 4, 1 through 3. King Nebuchadnezzar, to those of every people, nation, and language who live on the whole earth, may your prosperity increase. I'm pleased to tell you about the miracles and wonders the Most High God has done for me. How great are His miracles and how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom and His dominion is from generation to generation. It's, it's like He's coaching all of us freshmen, right? He's saying, don't take the hard way. Take the easy way. I think He would have agreed with my coach. In the end, that lazy way leads to great loss and loss is harder than practice the tough path is called the easy way because it leads to victory. All God's people said, having been coached by God through the hard way, Nebuchadnezzar wants everyone else to learn from him and take the easy way. It's, he's, he's wonderfully sharing what he's learned to try and change the world, something we should all do. Look, look, look how Dr. Peel ends his book on Daniel. The life of a godly man or woman is the most powerful force on earth to turn people as well as nations to God. Let's pray about that. Pray with me, please. Father, I pray for myself. I pray for my brothers and sisters who are believers in Jesus that we will, that we will be a powerful force on earth to turn people and nations to you. Now, for that to happen, we have got to stop lying and scheming. We need to be wise. We've got to be wise as serpents, but we need to be innocent as doves. It's ridiculous that we try and call a world to trust you, the great, loving, powerful God, and we don't live like we trust you. So I beg you that you will change us, that we will start sharing what we have learned, and that we will start calling people to the easy way of submitting completely to you and stopping our lying and our scheming. And Lord, speaking of coming to you, I pray for anyone, anyone studying with me that does not know Jesus as Savior. I pray that you open their eyes right now to let them see without having to go through what Nebuchadnezzar did. Please let them take the easy way. Friend, listen. You are a sinner. You are separated from God because you are unholy. So am I. It's a fact of our humanity and you know it. But God loves so much. He loved so much that God the Son came to this earth and He died on a cross. He gave up His life willingly because it was the only price that could pay for our sin. And then He rose from the dead so that if you trust Him, you have everlasting life in Him. If you've never done so, trust Him right now. Stop living with, with bird's claws and eagle's feathers. You can't fly. 
But God, God can make you new. And he does for everybody who trusts him. Do so right now. Trust Jesus as Savior. If you just trusted Jesus as Savior, raise your hand. Everybody else is praying. I just want to rejoice with you. Okay, cool. That's great. Lord, I pray for all these believers in Christ, new or old, that we praise, we exalt, that we learn from this Gentile, that we glorify the King of Heaven continually because all your works are true and your ways are just, and may we constantly remember that you will humble us when we walk in pride. In Jesus' name, amen.